Hello, I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. And I'd like to welcome you back to the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover Fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. Our guest today is Sharon Victoria Shen. She's a Hoover National Fellow, an interdisciplinary environmental scholar whose research explores the intersections of political science, public policy, and environmental sciences, and engineering with particular understanding of how local politics influence environmental governance. Victoria Shen joins us today to discuss her new book, The Political Regulation Wave, a case of how local incentives systematically shape air quality in China. Victoria, thanks for taking part in the book club. Thank you for having me here. Okay, so this is a complicated topic, which we'll get to in a minute, but let's talk a little bit about you, the author, and your background in political science and environmental engineering. Tell us a little bit about how your academic studies led you to the book. Right. So I live in Beijing uh, before and during the 2000 Summer Olympics. And in 2007, the city government tried to test the effectiveness of air pollution control measures. And I remember um, witnessing firsthand how political determination and power changed the color of the sky in just a matter of days. So in a very mighty wave of, of political regulation, uh, dirty cars were banned from the city, and uh, half of the privately owned cars were kept off the streets through an odd and even number system. Mm -hmm. And power plants were operating at substantially lowered capacity, construction projects were suspended, and several high-polluting factories were shut down. Right. Not, not just in Beijing, but also in surrounding provinces in, in case there is spillover of pollution into Beijing. Um, since air pollution happens Concomitantly with economic and environmental regulatory activities, the regulatory campaign immediately affected air quality. Mm -hmm. So um, as a result, um, I remember just seeing this skyline transforming from being shrouded in a brownish yellow haze to a crystal clear blue sky in just a few days. And I was absolutely, absolutely amazed um, at what happened. So um, this experience inspired my interest in studying the connection between political and environmental sciences in college. Mm -hmm. So after graduating from Swarthmore College, I started graduate school here at Stanford, um, so, which uh, felt very much like a continuation of the, the liberal arts uh, experience, or so I made it to be. Um, so to understand better the causes and solutions for air pollution, I enrolled in classes in the science and engineering quad on the uh, other side of campus from Hoover, um, and um, which uh, eventually led to a formal graduate degree in civil and environmental engineering. And that happened simultaneously uh, with pursuing a PhD in political science mm -hmm. across the street from Hoover Institution in, in Sina Hall. That's funny. Uh, and if you like blue skies, Stanford's a perfect place to come to, because if anyone's been here in the summertime, they know that there's hardly a cloud in the sky. It's blue every time. Though people notice the backdrop that they're looking at right now, it's either very smoky at the Hoover Tower or it's very foggy one or the other. We'll get to that in a few minutes, so about the role that fires played at Stanford. But uh, you and I were talking about the book the other day, and you had a very clever phrase for it. You called it your book baby. So Tell us a bit about actually how long it took for you to produce this from start to finish. So it sounds like back in the first decade of the century, you started thinking about air quality, but when did you actually start thinking about putting this into book form? So um, I started this project um, on this campus 
eight years ago in 2014. Mm -hmm. So uh, the book baby is now uh, finally born where it was conceived. Um, and uh, life really comes to full circle for the, for the book. So, um, right. So, so the, the, the book baby analogy, I, I often tell my non-academic friends and, and acquaintances that, that a human baby takes 10 months to create, but the book baby took me eight, eight years. And uh, I know in some other academics experiences, creating their book babies took like 10 years or more. So, um, so after a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, I am very happy to see the book now uh, finally out in the world. We're happy to see it too. So you and I are having a conversation not long before Earth Day, which this year is April the 22nd. This is a day set aside to ponder the condition of the planet's environment, pollution, waste, deforestation, climate change. What's the connection between that and your book? Um, so uh, to make a long story short, um, the uh, environmental movement in the United States and the origin of Earth Day had a lot to do with air pollution regulation. So um, I will start with uh, the story of Donora, Pennsylvania, which is a town about 20 miles to the south of Pittsburgh. Right. So in the um, early 20th century, Donora residents primarily relied on two industrial plants for a living. And billowing smoke was considered a sign of prosperity and progress. Um, in contrast, blue skies were associated with economic depression and unemployment. Um, in October 1948, Donora was famously besieged by a smog so dense and poisonous that it killed 20 people and 10 dogs and sickened about half of the residents living in town. So in the decade following the incident, uh, residents in Donora still had higher cardiovascular diseases and uh, cancer rates compared to um, the rest of the country. And Donora pollution event uh, resulted in the first uh, large scale environmental health investigation in the United States history and really uh, focus the national attention on air pollution. So, um, so after Donora, over time, there was a growing public awareness about the link between air and water pollution and public health, thanks to the media and also popular writings, most notably uh, Rachel Carson's 1962 seminal work, Silent Spring. It's about DDT, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Um, and as a result, uh, Congress enacted the Clean Air Act of 1963, which mm -hmm. laid the foundation for later legislation on air quality. And uh, speaking of Earth Day, on April 22nd, 1970, uh, then-Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin founded Earth Day to uh, force environmental issues further onto the national agenda and right. several millions of people uh, put up demonstrations across cities in the United States. And in uh, December 1970, uh, Congress authorized the creation of a new federal agency to mm -hmm. tackle environmental issues. Um, and that is what we know today as the US EPA. So yeah. um, the birth of Earth Day was very closely related to air pollution regulation. 
Right. Um, I'll tell you a funny side story. Um, my family uh, is originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Victoria. And uh, when I was a teenager, my sister and I were teenagers, we needed cars to go back and forth to school. My grandmother, my father's mother living in Pittsburgh at the time, she had a spare car. And so she was kind enough to gift it to us. Well, it was a nice car and all that, except it had one problem, Victoria. There was rust on the outside of it. And then actually one morning I got in the car and I literally put my foot through the floor of the car. And here was the problem. This car had been in McKeesport, Pennsylvania for the better part of a decade. McKeesport is just outside of Pittsburgh and it's a steel town. It's a mill town. And what happens is metal gets oxidized over a period of time by the pollution caused by the mill. And it literally eats away at your car. And that's how you end up putting your foot through your car. So well, welcome to life, I guess, in Western Pennsylvania back in the 1960s and 70s. But, you know, it's funny, Victoria, I think this is something that we neglect maybe uh, living and working where you and I do. And this gets us to that um, that background we're looking at, the question whether or not that is smoke or fog descending over the Hoover Tower in the Stanford campus. Um, you live here, as I mentioned, and the air is wonderful. The skies are clear. In the fall of 2020, though, something different happened here in California. We had wildfires descend upon us, and we were blanketed in smoke, not just for a few hours, but for days on end. It was the point where I was sick. I was getting headaches by this. It was just you couldn't go outside and exercise. You couldn't ride a bicycle. You couldn't swim. You just were confined to being inside, and there was no escape from the smoke. And this is a serious problem, obviously. This creates what asthma is a risk of asthma for kids. Uh, if you're elderly and you already have respiratory problems, it elevates chances of strokes and heart attacks and so forth. Um, the point is, though, that suddenly we had a wake-up call about, about air quality here in the Bay Area, it seems. My question, though, is this. How do people living in large metropolises cope with air pollution? Is it just something you get used to on a daily basis? Or um, do, does eventually the population push back against it? Or is just this, just this part of the acceptance? of living life in a big city. Right. That is, that is a that is a very uh, very good question. I can totally relate because I, I lived in uh, in Beijing for several years. Um, and the, where, where, uh, you, where you primarily get around on a bicycle, I suppose, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, so there was there was back then a lot of air pollution. It was like in the two thousands. Um, but uh, but that was before uh, air quality got really really worse. Um, right. Um, much worse in um, in like around 2012 and 2013. There was the, this popular phrase, uh, "air apocalypse, air pollution apocalypse." Um, right. In 2013, so um, so so back then, um, everybody can see that there there was there was air pollution um, because they the, the, that really negatively affected visibility, mm -hmm. um, but people did not really take defensive measures like wearing like a KN95 mask. Right. Um, and uh, and um, it was it was seen as as you know a sign of economic progress in some ways just like just like the uh, residents in Donora back in 1940 thought about um, air pollution. And, and sometimes people would wear um, face masks, but that's not really to defend themselves against exposure to air pollution, but mm -hmm. to uh, to protect their faces from from cold air. Right. Um, Beijing winters can get pretty brutal at times, and they um, they basically use it as as a, as, a, as a scarf. 
Um, so, um, so I was um, I was here uh, at Stanford in, in in 2017, and I remember it was the fall of 2017. There were like university uh, communication uh, was sending was sending emails to to everyone, stay indoors, close your windows because we have a right. um, a pretty bad um, smoke incident in in the area. So, um, so everyone was advised to stay indoors as much as possible, not uh, not exercise uh, outside, and also just um, try, try to try to wear face masks. Right, and that was a segue because here we have uh, constant. We have a lot of so-called spare the air days. Uh, this is where you're discouraged not to take your car to work or not to light a wood fire in your fireplace. But this was completely different for California because now you were talking about really correcting people's behaviors. Uh, Victoria, let's segue now into China. Uh, let me start with a very broad question for you. How is air pollution regulated in China? You know, here in the United States, we have the Environmental Protection Agency. We have we have government watchdogs constantly monitoring air pollution, air quality. How does China approach this? Um, yes, that is that is a very uh, broad question. Um, mm -hmm. So um, when it comes to uh, institutions, there are many similarities between the U.S. and China, like laws, regulations, ministries, departments, agencies, and, and bureaus. So, um, for instance, the uh, equivalent to the U.S. EPA would be the MEE, which stands for the Ministry of Ecology and Environment. Uh, MEE had different names in the past, like MEP, Ministry of Environmental Protection, and SEPA, um, State Environmental Protection Agency. And there were other names prior to SEPA. Um, every time it changed its name, um, it received some elevation in status. Mm -hmm. um, and vertically under the MEE, there are EPBs or Environmental Protection Bureaus. Right. So, so it is called a bureau rather than an agency in the, in the U.S. context. Mm -hmm. All right. So this now ties in the title of the book, which is Local Governance. Okay. So local incentives systematically shaping air quality. So let's talk about the local incentives. So, um, so local incentives like Chinese officials at local levels face incentives to get promoted, just like local officials in the U.S. face incentives to get reelected. Right. So, so, uh, so in my book, I um, did some comparative work between China and Mexico. Mexico is a democracy, so, so we can see the, the parallel between uh, two different types of regimes. Right. Um, so um, so uh, local officials in China seek to get promoted because uh, with promotion, there is higher social status, uh, more power, nicer houses, uh, more uh, better cars and all the, all the other desirable things in life. Mm -hmm. um, and money and power are usually concentrated in the, in the, in the same hands. So there are real material benefits associated with um advancing um, along the, uh, the, the, the political and bureaucratic ladders. So, mm -hmm. um, so for a very long time, um, especially since the, the economic reforms of the 1980s, the primary goal of both the central and the local government was to grow the economy. So the two pillars of cadre evaluation focus very much on economic growth and also maintaining social stability. That changed around 2010 when the, the status of environmental protection was substantially elevated in cadre evaluation. Okay, so 
I'm curious as to what the metric is for success. If you are that local official and you're engaged in local incentives, you use the parallel of the American elected official. Well, that's an elected official who runs on a record and he and she will say, look, I built highways, I opened schools, I cut your taxes. In other words, they're demonstrables that an incumbent politician can show in America. But if you're a Chinese local official, what do you, what, what, how do you show success? What is your metric? So that is a very good question. What is the utility function for a local official? Um, so, so when it comes to promotion evaluation, um, based on my field interviews, uh, there are a few factors that are deemed important in um, influencing a local leader's chances of getting promoted. The first one is performance. So before 2010, uh, evaluation of performance was based mainly on uh, economic growth and uh, maintenance of social stability. Mm -hmm. And after 2010, uh, the environment became more important. So say like being able to effectively control air pollution was part of the criteria in um, four regional clusters in the country. Right. Um, so, um, so, the, the, so performance number one, number two is political connection. So researchers have found that leaders who are politically con connected with their superiors who are evaluating their work, whether uh, they come from the same hometown or they work at the same place at the same time before would have an effect on their chances of getting promoted. And, uh, and some of my interviewees also uh, indicated that factors such as personality would also influence one's chances of advancing along the ladder, uh, whether or not they get along with their political superiors. And we can see a parallel um, in the US uh, performance is one, whether or not they are able to make that, that performance very visible to voters, like having, having construction projects, uh, creating things that are very visible and, and perceivable uh, to the voters and the voters can attribute those achievements to the incumbent. Those, those are uh, important factors. Right. Okay, very good. So if I wake up in the morning, Victoria, and I want to know what the air quality is, it's not a very long search. It's not a very complicated search. I can very quickly go on to this magical little watch here, which will give me an app. Either it'll come up on its own or I can get an app and it'll tell me the air quality. I can jump on the internet and I can look up local government or I can go to the Environmental Protection Agency and they'll give me the air quality. I can turn on my local news and wait for the weather and they'll give me the local uh, temperature and so forth. Uh, if I'm living in China, though, where information does not necessarily flow as freely, I wake up in the morning in Beijing or Shanghai and I look outside and the weather doesn't look that great, the air doesn't look that good. How do I find out how bad things are? In other words, how, how open is the society with in terms of talking about its air quality? So uh, the landscape of air pollution information changed pretty drastically in the past two mm -hmm. decades. Um, before 2012, uh, people could gain inconclusive information from official sources. Um, and in addition, they could uh, install a VPN uh, on their computer and check the hourly air quality tweets from the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, um, which would also be inconclusive because the readings come from one measurement point um, and it is not necessarily representative of other parts of the country, of, well, of the city. Right. Um, so um, an official from uh, Central uh, Environment and Energy Planning, whom I interviewed, um, also expressed 
disbelief in official data. Um, as and as we know, in, in China, there is a saying, officials make statistics and statistics make officials. So even some central level officials are, 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 are in disbelief about some official reportings. Yes. Um, so, and, and this official that I interviewed told me that when he wanted to know about air quality, he resorted not to official reporting, but looked outside of his office to see if right. the building across the street was visible to him. Right. Um, however, um, things changed. New measures and standards have been rolled out to improve monitoring and transparency since 2012. So in February 2012, new national ambient air quality standards, also known as NAAQS, were issued. The uh, Ministry of Environmental Protection then rolled out an implementation plan to install more than mm. um, 1,600 EPA-grade monitoring stations to track real-time concentrations for six criteria pollutants by the end of 2014. Right. Um, in addition to that, um, pollutant concentration information was officially required to be published and publicized by official websites, cell phones, uh, the Chinese blog called Weibo, television and radio in an easy to understand format and language. Um, and there is a, a very convenient um, smartphone app that I have installed on my cell phone. I am checking to see it is called Blue Map. So uh, Blue Map is designed to be the one-stop shop of environmental data near where the user lives in China. Okay. Interesting. So the government's it sounds like the government's come to the conclusion that you can't hide information necessarily. In other words, you can't deceive people based upon what their eyes see. You can't put out statistics saying the skies are clear if I look out my window and I can't see the building that's 50 feet away from me. Right, exactly. So that also differentiates uh, air pollution from other types of pollution like soil pollution. The, um, the negative impacts of soil pollution usually takes a very long time to manifest while air pollution is something you can literally see. Okay, let's segue now into the question of how China balances economic growth with environmental stewardship. And I'd like to read to you, Victoria, uh, some comments that Xi Jinping made in January. He was speaking to uh, Communist Party leaders in China. He said the nation has to overcome, quote, the notion of rapid success and proceed gradually. In, in Xi's exact words, quote, reducing emissions is not about reducing productivity. It is not about emitting at all either. And he added, quote, we must stick to the overall planning and ensure energy security, industrial change security, and food security at the same time as cutting carbon emissions. So I'll note that he tacked on carbon emissions at the end of it. Is this something new in 2022, or has this been going on for longer than I would realize that G has been giving mention of the environment, which is what carbon emissions take you to? So uh, in his speech, she uh, basically mentioned multiple, multiple goals that he was trying to achieve at the same time. And some of them may, may not be, some of them may be complementary, while others a little bit contradictory. So, um, mm -hmm. so I think this really speaks to. Um, I will. I will come back to climate change later. Yes. So, I think this really speaks to uh, the trade-off between uh, environmental protection and also economic growth. Something that my book touched upon in um, the second to last chapter. 
So, um, so the trade-off between uh, economic development and environmental protection um, is an enduring question that every country faces now, in the past, or in the future. Um, and we know that lax uh, environmental regulation can benefit the economy and employment, but would result in more pollution, which threatens human well-being and even leading to premature deaths. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when regulation is strictly imposed, air quality improves, but many may lose their jobs, profits, and welfare, especially when this transition from economy first to environment first happens very fast and abruptly. And I think uh, President Xi's speech touched upon this very uh, rapid transition. And there are dangers to a very rapid transition. Um, A case in point is uh, China's coal to gas initiative, which uh, mainly targeted rural households to switch from coal burning to natural gas use for heating and electricity. However, the sudden shift did not bode well for uh, many local residents. Um, And many local stoves were removed before new natural gas furnaces were put in place, leaving um, tens of thousands of residents in the cold. And some some news reports suggest that in areas uh, with furnaces, a sudden surge in demand for natural gas was uh, way exceeded supply. So um, so that pushed up uh, prices and also created shortages in some areas. And in uh, Hebei province, for instance, uh, Hebei province is the one that abuts Beijing. Um, School children um, had their lessons outside in the yards because it was warmer under the sun than in their freezing classrooms. So so there are um, unintended consequences and also uh, difficult trade-offs for decision makers. Right. So a few of Jing's goals, he's pledged to peak emissions by the end of the decade. um, And he has vowed that China will be a carbon neutral society by the year 2060. Uh, But that said, Victoria, he is a politician at the end of the day. He lives under a different set of rules than, say, American presidents do. But Victoria, he has a similar problem to Joe Biden, I think, in this regard. If you start going down aggressively the avenue of uh, climate change and environmental policy, you run into an economic hardship potentially, and that's inflation. And how does that affect China? It could constrain coal, it could constrain metal supplies, fertilizers, and all that will do is push up prices. And as we know, that makes people very unhappy. So how confident are you that he's going to be able to reach these goals of either peak emissions by the end of the decade or the really lofty goal of carbon neutral society by 2060? Uh, that is a million dollar question. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so this is something that I'm hoping to look into for my second book project. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, the determination to uh, fight climate change is uh, very strong. Um, it is as strong as determination to fight air pollution in the past decade. Mm-hmm. Um, a, um, as uh, a, a policy implementation scholar, I am more worried about effective policy implementation. So the current book that we are, we are discussing is about air pollution, um, but I think there are useful lessons to be drawn from China's past efforts to contain air pollution um, and, and apply those lessons to, uh, to its future efforts to contain uh, carbon dioxide emissions. So uh, based on the research done for my book, uh, three elements 
are prominent in successful implementation. Mm -hmm. So the first is to uh, get the local incentives right. The second is improving monitoring. And the, the third is to uh, reduce the level of ambiguity in both policy goals and also the means to achieve those goals. So, um, so when it comes to uh, incentives, um, just like controlling air pollution, like uh, integrating uh, air pollution targets into uh, local official evaluation, mm -hmm. um, so the central government can integrate climate goals into short-term plans and also clearly assign concrete responsibility, um, and that will help set up the desired incentive structure. However, that would not be enough. Um, Another very important thing to do is, is to increase monitoring. Um, right. And in terms of monitoring, um, a uh, fundamental and first degree challenge is to be able to get the amount of carbon in organizations emit correctly. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, verifying carbon emissions is uh, less straightforward than measuring air pollutant concentration and can vary substantially depending on the methodology. Um, and there's also a lot of ambiguity involved. And as I indicated in my book, like comparing the, the control of sulfur, dioxide, sulfur dioxide emissions and control the, um, the, the emissions of PM 2.5, one uh, difference in the success of effectively controlling sulfur dioxide, but not, not as successfully controlling the pattern in uh, PM 2.5 concentration over time is that um, controlling, factly controlling PM 2.5 involves a very high level of ambiguity. So I'd be happy to go into more detail in explaining uh, the ambiguity involved in controlling PM 2.5, but to stay on the question about uh, yes. controlling carbon emissions, there will be ambiguities, quite a lot of ambiguity in terms of the means to, to uh, reduce carbon dioxide emissions. So, so in the past, there was a national, uh, there were a series of national experimentation initiatives targeted at reducing carbon emissions um, in, uh, in Chinese cities. So most notably, there was an initiative called Low Carbon City Development Experimentation. Mm -hmm. There were uh, three waves. Um, the first wave took place in, um, in 2010. It lasted between 2010 and 2012. The second wave started in 2012 and lasted until 2015. And the third wave started in 2017 and lasted until uh, 2020. So, um, well, under the central government's call uh, for low carbon city development, cities would apply to become a pilot and the central government would gather a group of experts to select the, uh, the countries they think are going to be appropriate and going to be representative um, and have a, have a demonstration effect. And when these uh, cities get selected to become uh, low carbon pilots, they would design their own plans and measures to try to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions. And it's been uh, reported in, in, in the news that uh, some cities will um, do certain things that created the facade of being green, but that would somehow be counterproductive to reduce carbon emissions. So for instance, uh, some low carbon pilots were found to uh, install grass to expand mm -hmm. green space in public areas, even though growing and maintaining grass can be highly carbon intensive. Right. Okay. So uh, reducing the, the level of ambiguity in, 
in achieving uh, low carbon would be very important. Okay, let's spend a couple of minutes talking about Xi Jinping himself. You and I um, had a talk the other day, and you mentioned that he actually has a background in, of all things, journalism, and that actually he once upon a time showed an interest in the environment. So are you suggesting that deep down he might actually have sympathy for the environment? He might be, he might be an environmentalist, dare I say. So as we know, leadership really matters in uh, what type of policy is being prioritized. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say that uh, President Xi played a very substantial role in elevating uh, environmental protection on the national policy agenda. So uh, the great attention he pays to environmental protection and also sustainable development is one of his most distinguishing characteristics as a top leader. Mm-hmm. And he was among the first uh, Chinese leaders to recognize that the country's energy intensive and high polluting economic model was unsustainable. Right. So, um, so when Xi was still the, the party secretary, the party secretary is the first in command of a, of a region. So when he was the party secretary of Zhejiang province, a uh, province on the eastern coast of the country that underwent uh, rapid economic development, thanks to the country's uh, reform and opening policy. Right. Um, so she started a newspaper column for which he wrote about an article a week for four years under a pen name. And um, some analysis show that about 10% of those pieces had something to do with the environment, even at a time when the economy was deemed the most important, and especially in the province that was that was a, a vanguard in, in the, the country's uh, economic landscape. And was he taking the environment and was he tying that into prosperity or was he tying it into the larger concept of just good quality of life? So um, so I read some of the pieces and seemed like he was doing both. Both, okay. And he would also openly talk about um, an experience he had early on in his career. Uh, He was working in a small village in Western China, and he uh, witnessed firsthand how the environment was severely damaged due to economic development and how the people there were trapped in perpetual poverty as a result. And he uh, credits that experience for his understanding that men and nature should live in harmony and that the damage done to nature could eventually get at humans. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in, in 2005, he, uh, he gave a speech, which, um, which, was, uh, which, uh, which was sensational at the time and became even more sensational years later um, when he became the president and, and re-referenced some of the things he said. So he basically remarked, uh, lucid waters and lush mountains are gold mountains and silver mountains. Mm-hmm. So here, gold and silver indicate that something is priceless. So, so we can see that he already had a pretty high level of in- environmental consciousness early on. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to how he is going to promote this message moving forward. And I don't want to get too deep into your next book project, but um, I was uh, reading some information from a website called uh, Transition Zero, Victoria. This is a uh, climate think tank. It claims that China has to close down about 600 coal-fired power plants to become carbon neutral by 2060. 
Uh, the good news for China, it's very aggressive on the world stage in terms of solar power and wind turbines. I think it's considered a, a leader on both. Uh, it's building five nuclear plants right now to uh, help foster clean power as well. But you're going to be shutting down uh, about 600 out of about 1,000 coal plants across China if you need to reach this goal. And this gets back to what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, that for some people you associate dirty air with prosperity. So I'm curious as to how you see Chinese leadership, both national but also local, explaining to the population that, okay, you don't see dirty air coming out of factories. That doesn't mean that we're necessarily a poorer nation. Right. So on this, I will I will reference a, a, a public survey uh, that I did in China. It was in uh, 2017. So I was the initial goal was basically to see how the uh, public would react to uh, the placement of wind generators in urban areas. So uh, so the uh, the motivation for doing that uh, is. Uh, transmission lines can be very long from um, where the, the wind turbines are usually located in like in in, in rural areas or in uh, or or or, or um, in, in, well in faraway regions from from the cities and uh, so um, so in order to uh, minimize the um, the uh, length of transmission lines I was trying to see if 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 it would be um, appropriate and also welcomed by, by urban residents to place those wind generators in, in cities. And so uh, the uh, one panel of the uh, questionnaire had something to do with people's opinions about uh, environmental protection, their attitudes, uh, their, um, their perception of climate change and um, their, um, their, the role they see that the government, well, the uh, the role that the central government and also science play in uh, their perception of climate change. Mm-hmm. So um, so 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 according to the survey results, um, the public was was pretty um, overall pretty uh, uh, had a pretty high level of of environmental awareness, and they would be willing to pay a small amount of money every month in order to uh, use electricity generated from renewable sources as opposed to coal. So that is a, that is a pretty promising sign that, that uh, individuals uh, living in urban areas, this urban, urban population was the target population for the survey. Um, they were already pretty welcoming of, um, of uh, renewable energy and they were willing to pay uh, a, a certain price in order to use clean energy. So are the Chinese uh, individuals you polled, are they similar to Americans in this regard? Let's say here in California, if you surveyed Californians about uh, about uh, about clean air and about climate change, they would probably, I'm guessing a majority would say, yes, we believe climate change is a very serious problem. And then when you polled them, Victoria, about alternate energy, they probably expressed two concerns. Number one would be the cost. And the second one would be the reliability, especially here in California, where we have a notoriously, a notoriously unreliable electricity grid. Do you see the same elements afoot in China in terms of, I think you mentioned costs, they're willing to go along with a little little more money, but maybe not exorbitant. But do they also have the concern about reliability? In other words, these American concerns that we see. Um, that is a very good question, because when, uh, when my co-authors and I conducted the opinion survey in China, 
we were modeling it on, on a different study focused on California. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so, uh, so Californians, when it comes to uh, say wind turbines, they were concerned about cost. They were concerned about re- uh, reliability. They were concerned about the ease with which to be able to install those um, the solar panels, the the, the wind the wind turbines. Um, and uh, they were also concerned about the uh, wildlife externalities of wind turbines because we know uh, a pretty high number of birds and bats um, die from wind turbines every year. So, uh, so they are, they are uh, concerned about the wildlife externalities of wind turbines. And so we used uh, some of the, the, the same measures for, for the China survey. Um, so, so before we, we uh, implemented our uh, official survey, we had this um, early stage like test survey um, and we uh, provided open-ended questions for, um, for the respondents to express concerns. And to our great surprise, one's concern that appeared in like 30% of the responses was concern about, about radiation coming from wind turbines. Scientists uh, have debunked the, uh, the theory that uh, wind turbines generate radiation um, a very long time ago. And, and it's just interesting that uh, the, uh, the Californian respondents did not say anything about radiation, but 30% of the, the Chinese respondents would be worried about radiation coming from turbines. That's odd, but that might be a function of how information flows in California. You talk turbines in California, you invariably get in a conversation about one thing, and that's birds getting sucked into them. Um, we just have a couple minutes left, Victoria. Uh, quickly, um, explain how China and, and Cal- California and the West Coast in particular are tied together on air pollution. And what I'm thinking is something as simple as which way the wind blows. So um, that is a very interesting question. It has something to do with the uh, global migration of air pollutants. So air pollution moves across jurisdictions within the same country. Um, They also move across country borders. And how far air pollution moves depends on the type of air pollutant. Um, For instance, sulfur dioxide, which I examined in detail in the book, generally stays relatively close to its emission source. Although uh, the season temperature and wind speed may affect how far sulfur dioxide can travel. So in contrast, um, tiny particles like PM 2.5 can travel very, very long distances. And um, and when I was living uh, in the Bay Area in 2017, I remember hearing on KQED radio that the US West Coast receives PM 2.5 from China. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, what? That is a very long distance across the, the, the Pacific Ocean. So right. I was very curious and I look it up online. And indeed, there is a study suggesting that about 30% of the Bay Area's PM 2.5 comes from China. So uh, California and China collaborate on, on the climate initiative um, and they are also uh, intricate, intricately uh, connected uh, due to air pollution. Okay, very good. Uh, final question for you, Victoria. Uh, you are here on the Stanford campus with me, but I understand that you are relocating to the University of Virginia, which is my uh, family's alma mater for the most part. I love Charlottesville, Virginia. Tell us a bit about what you're teaching. 
Yes, I know you would mention UVA because because uh, because yes. uh, your most of your family members went there, and I will be looking for the Wallen Chair on UVA okay. campus when I get I'll give, back. I'll give you directions. But what uh, what are you doing in Charlottesville? So um, so this fall, I will be teaching two classes related to environment and climate. Uh, one is uh, a, a pretty general overview of environmental politics, and the other uh, class I'm teaching for the first time is the politics of climate change. Ah. Very good. And look forward to it. All right, Victoria. Well, look, this is a great conversation. I want to thank you for visiting the book club today and congratulations on what I think is a really fascinating book and good luck on the next one. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't take eight years to deliver that baby. Thank you, Bill. The book again, The Political Regulation Wave, A Case of How Local Incentives Systematically Shape Air Quality in China. I have a hard copy. If you want a hard copy yourself, you can purchase it online at Cambridge Core, which is the books and journals platform from Cambridge University Press. You can read more about Victoria Shen at the Hoover Institution website, which is hoover.org. You'll find her biography there. You can also find her on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at, is at S Victoria Shen. That is S Victoria, as you might expect to sell it. Shen spelled S-H-E-N at S Victoria Shen. She also has her own website, which is svshen.com. The Hoover Institution, of course, is on Twitter, too. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst, which is at Hoover I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of the Hoover Book Club. Thanks for watching. Mm-hmm.